Andrew Wilson! Thank you very much. Oh, not many people can make a mess of coming on the stage, but I have managed it now, more than once. Um, good evening. We're going to be in the book of 1 Samuel. If you have a Bible, do you want to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 4? And we're going to be looking at a few different bits. And what I'm going to try and do is tell you the story of 1 and 2 Samuel in a very particular way. Because I want to tell you the story not of the bits of 1 and 2 Samuel you may already know well, in terms of the armies and the kings and the prophets and the people. But I want to tell you the story of 1 Samuel as the story of a box. Okay, so this box is not a replica of the Ark of the Covenant, but it represents the Ark of the Covenant, which is a box that was originally about four foot by two foot by two foot, and it was much more ornate and clever and well-designed than this, but it was a box in which the living God lived. It was the place in which the mighty power and beauty and fire of God Dwelt. It was like this sort of incredibly intense expression of his glory and holiness, and it was inside a box, maybe a little bit larger than that, and much heavier because it was actually lined with gold. And we're going to walk, walk through the story of 1 Samuel and a bit of 2 Samuel, looking at what happened to this box, looking at the journey it went on, looking at how people responded to it and what happened when they did. But bear in mind, as we're doing this, that today, God is not living in a box, God goes from living in a box to living in a person, namely Jesus, to then being poured out in his spirit on all of his people in the church. So in a way, the people sitting on either side of you are now the ark. You are the place. The church is the place where God lives. And you've got to bear that in mind as we walk through this story because there will be bits of it that will sound very strange. But what I'm hoping that we're going to be able to do as we look at the ark in 1 and 2 Samuel is understand something of what it means to have God live among us. And I think some of it will probably help those of us who have questions about what that's like and may even not have enough questions. We may be too familiar with the idea and I believe God wants to open something out to us this evening and show us something of what it means for him, the living, the creator of the stars to live among us I think that's going to be where God's going to take us this evening. And so the story of 1 Samuel actually begins with the ark in the house of God at a place called Shiloh, which is, if you like, the tent of God. It was called the tabernacle, a tent where God lived. And this is where Eli, the old priest, is in charge. He's ministering. He's serving. And a woman called Hannah comes and asks for a baby, and then she eventually gets a baby and devotes her back to the Lord. His name is Samuel. And so there's a lovely story that you probably all know from Sunday school, or many of you do, uh, from kids' Bibles and the like. But the story really, the story of the ark kind of begins in earnest in 1 Samuel chapter 4 in the context of a battle. So I'd like the armies to come on now for a second. If you like, the armies come up, the Israelites and the Philistines are going to come up and join us here. And as if to represent the fact that the Philistines were technologically a little bit more advanced, we've got the guys playing the Philistines, just because you might feel that they had the, the better odds in this particular little battle. And so this is Israel, and this is the Philistines, and they are enemies of each other. And in 1 Samuel chapter 4, you find these guys are the villains throughout the whole book of 1 and 2 Samuel, really. They're the people that are content. Goliath, if you heard of him, he's a Philistine. And so they're at, they're at war with Israel for a long period of time in this bit of Israel's story. 
And so there's this battle which they then join up. They fight each other at Aphek. And they go into battle against one another and fight. And the Philistines are winning. The Philistines are beating back the Israelites. And suddenly the Israelites say, wait, here is our thing. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant here from Shiloh that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Now wait, look what, look what they did. They went, we've gone into battle. We had a plan. We thought God was going to be with us. And we're losing. <gasps> Something's gone awry. I know what it is. We didn't get the box. They are treating the presence of God a little bit like a lucky charm or a talisman. They are saying, it's the box will save us. So let's go get the box. And then they get prepared to go charging into battle again against the Philistines. And they do. And the fight continues. And they join battle. But the Philistines destroy the Israelites and capture the ark and take it back to their own land and kill all the Israelites. They take the box back to their land. They capture it. They put it in the temple of their gods. And this is one of the calamities of Israel's whole story. There is a baby boy who's born at this point in the story who is given the name by his mother, Ichabod, which means the glory has left. The glory has gone. And one of the reasons it happened is because Israel took the ark into battle as if it was really a lucky charm. They went, we've got a plan. It's all right. We know God's going to bless us. So let's go into fight. Yeah, we're going to win. Oh, actually, no, do you know what? It's not going so well. (gasps) You know what we did? We forgot to ask God. Uh, It's all right. We'll carry on with the plan, but this time, I'm sure God will be cool with it. Let's go and charge it. And if our God is for us, who can ever stop? Oh, no, this is not working. And they lost, and the ark was captured and taken and placed by the Philistines in the temple of their God, whose name was Dagon. My suspicion is that there are some of us here tonight who actually know a little bit of what it's like to be like the Israelites at the Battle of Aphek. I think there's some of you, some of us, who live like that. We say, I've got a plan. It's fine. It's got a plan. I don't really know whether God likes it or not, but I'm pretty sure he does. So let's go for it. I'm sure it's going to work. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Oh, it's not quite working. Ah, you know what I forgot to do? I forgot to just bring the God trophy with me. So I'll bring the God trophy into battle. Here we go, here we go. I've now got God on my side. The plan has not been formed with reference to God. We're doing our own thing. And when it doesn't work, we go, ah, that's right. Forgot God. Let's get God. Stick him in. I'm sure that'll work. And it doesn't, friends. Often... The fact that we didn't ask God about the whole thing means that when we fight our battles of Aphek, when we take on the enemy, when we go in to take on anything that God has for us and we haven't consulted with him and we simply tack him onto our plan, we find we may well lose out. And actually in this particular case, although this will never happen to you, the presence of God is taken from them and taken from the battle of Aphek way back to their temple, to their God whose name is Dagon. And that's where they put it. And so what they have, there, this is the next bit of the story is in 1 Samuel chapter 5. And so the story continues with the Philistines have their, the Ark of the Covenant in their temple next to their gods. So this is what happens in the ancient world. You see, if, I, if my city beats your city in a war, I assume that my god is stronger than your god. And so if I'm wanting to indicate how powerful my god is, I might well get your god, Israel's god, and put it in a temple next to my God. So I've got a statue of my God, Dagon, like this, or like this, or like this, or however he was posing. And next to him, they say, do you know what? Dagon has won, because he's our God, 
Israel's God sucks because look at him, he just lost a battle. So let's put his God next to our God that everyone might see that our God's better. This is 1 Samuel chapter 5. And then, well, it's one of my favorite stories. So they, all, they put the ark there and then they all go off to bed. And then it says in 1 Samuel chapter 5, the next morning when, they, when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Well, that's bad, right? That's a bad start. So they come in and Dagon is bowing down before the ark of the Lord, their statue. One of my favorite lines in the Bible. So they took Dagon and put him back. What's that going to do? If your God is dead and he's suddenly been put next to the real God, what is going to happen to him? He is going to be down on his face in front of him because there is only one God in the universe, the real one who lives in here. Your God is not real. And, but the Philistines think, no, we'll do them both. So they take Dagon and they put him back. I submit to you that if your God needs to be put back on his feet, he's probably not the maker of heaven and earth. Just a thought. Anyway, it continues. The next day, Dagon is back on his face, only this time his head and his arms and his feet have been knocked off so that only the trunk remains. At which point the Philistines realize they have a very, very big problem. They realize that in trying to make Dagon plus Yahweh, plus Israel's God, they have committed a grave crime. And so a massive hot potato story begins, which we'll trace in just a moment. I put it to you that sometimes in life, some of us do what the Philistines did. What we do is we find a God that we like. We think this God, Jesus, is wonderful. We think he's great. Jesus, he loves me. God the Father, he's wonderful. But I also have, as Simon was talking so beautifully about last night, I also have other gods that I like. It, might, it, might, it probably isn't Dagon. It might be for some of you, but it probably isn't a physical statue. But as Simon was saying, it could be any number of other things. It could be technology. It could be sexual relationships. It could be money and success or popularity or fame, any number of things. But what we do is we look and we think, not necessarily, oh, I love this so much that I don't want God. Some of us don't do that. Some of us are too clever for that. Some of us say, no, what I'll do is I'll have God and my favorite thing. That's what I'll do. I'll have both. I'll put them next to each other in my temple. Now this is like a designer, Andrew-shaped temple. It's got all the things I like. It's got the God of the Bible, who is great, big fan, and also my gods. And they sit next to each other. And I tell you what happens. If you don't act to either get rid of the God of the Bible or get rid of your other gods, what happens is your gods end up falling flat on their faces before the real one. And the only question is how much damage that process does to you and to those around you before you realize. And this is the moment, of course, that the Philistines begin to realize there's a real one. I don't know, you sometimes see these sort of little skits with guys dressing up in zoos in kind of tiger suits, right? Or bear suits. They sort of dress themselves up as a bear to go around frightening people and try and make it look realistic. Imagine for a moment, if you would, that a guy is dressed up in a tiger suit or a bear suit and then finds himself inside the tiger enclosure. What do you think happens? I imagine that you don't quite see the swagger that those guys had when they were running around scaring small children. You're dressed up as a tiger, like, rah, rah, like this, and you've really got a bit of swagger going, and then you get put into the tiger enclosure. It's a real one! Ah! 
Because when fake things meet the real version, there's trouble, and the real one wins. And that's what the Philistines found. And I think some of us do that. I think some of us put the living God alongside our own other thing. It may be that for some of you last night, you said, no, I I worship God. I don't have a problem with idolatry because I love God. And actually what God says is, it's not just I want to be your God, I want to be your only God. And we'll come back to that later. So anyway, the Philistines are in that kind of position. And as a result, they decide to, um, they think this is a problem. We've got the living God in a box and he's giving our God a bit of a hard time. I know, let's ship him off to another city. So they do. So they take him off to the city of Gath. And so they go from the city of Ashdod to the city of Gath. And there it is. And the people of Gath begin to get boils as a result of the presence of Israel's God. They start breaking out in tumors. And they say, this is bad. Because now, having destroyed our God, they've now, he's now giving us boils. We don't know how to handle the holiness of God. Ah! And so they, like again, like as if they're meeting a real tiger with their tiger suit on, they then ship it off to another city. And they say, no, we'll give it to the people of Ekron. And the people of Ekron say, a God has come here from Israel to kill us. They suddenly freak out. They think, that we've heard stories about this box. Everywhere it goes, the enemies of God seem to face judgments. And after quite a while of this ridiculous hot potato story, the Philistines eventually conclude, I think we better send it back. I think we better get rid of it. It's causing us far too much trouble here. Everywhere we put it, people seem to get sick or fall flat on their faces in front of him. So let's take it back. So they put it on a cart and they do a little experiment, which I don't have time to talk about now. And they send it off back to the land of Israel over here. And it arrives in a village called Bet Shemesh. And you can read about this in 1 Samuel chapter 6. And so the men of Bet Shemesh are really pleased about this. God is back. Woohoo! And so they're really, really pleased about it. But some of them take it into their heads that, oh, do you know what? I've always been curious about what's in here. Should we go and have a look? Should we have a look and peer inside the ark? I, don't, I just wonder what's in there. What does it look like? Does bright light come out? What's it like? And they open the ark to peer inside. And 70 of them are killed instantly. Instantly, 70 of them die in this village, which doesn't have that many inhabitants, and everybody in the village freaks out. And they begin to say to each other, who can stand, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? If we, his people, are just simply opening the box, look inside, and 70 of us die, who can stand? What are we supposed to do? And you can imagine... They are no longer singing, and if our God is for us, they're now singing, so I fall face down, or something to that effect. And they're terrified, because this God, if, if they are flippant with him, this God is able to kill them. I don't know what kind of equivalent powers you've had to that. I don't know what sort of experiences you've had where you've seen something of immense power unleashed in front of you. Um, I think when you do, you know, and you end up being very careful. So a couple of examples in my own life. I, I went um, on, a, on a ship in the North Sea when I was at about 17, and the, the North Sea was so, the ocean was so dramatic and ro- roaring and raging that I didn't know this at the time, but there were oil rigs that had been set adrift from their moorings floating at large in the North Sea because the storm was so bad. And our boat was just keeling, like this. 
I didn't know, we didn't find out until breakfast the next morning, that the ship had actually dropped anchor for 17 hours without telling anyone. So we thought we were nearly at Harwich and about to get into Essex and off we go home. And instead, we were still stuck next to Denmark, waiting for the storm to stop because the guy said, well, look, if we take the anchor up and turn the engines on, we're going to go backwards or worse. So they didn't tell us and they just dropped anchor and left us there overnight. It was crazy. And I, my, me and my family were the last people out onto the deck before they shut the deck and didn't let us out. And me and my dad were sort of climbing up the outside of the sort of these steps, trying to fight back the wind. And the boat's just keeling like crazy. And we stand on the top deck where there's a spray sort of perspex sheet protecting us. And it's like being fired at with a water cannon or a fire hose as we're getting the ocean just smashing against the boat. And when you're in a setting like that, you can feel two things simultaneously and they're both right. At one level, you look out at the raging ocean and you feel utter terror. And at the same time, you look at this perspex sheet and you think, wow, it's good to be safe here. When the people of God stand humbly before his presence and acknowledge that he is God and they are not, they are protected beautifully by this wonderful perspex sheet of God's grace and forgiveness over them. But when they don't, when they monkey around, when they try and make God go next to one of their other gods, or use him as a lucky charm charging into battle, or perhaps just going, do you know what, it won't matter, we can have a look inside, see what's in there. When those things happen, death strikes. You have to fear for your life if you monkey around with the living God. This isn't just even in the Old Testament, by the way. Ananias and Sapphira do it. If you know them in Acts chapter 5, couples, it doesn't matter. We'll give to the church and just exaggerate how much we gave. And Peter says, is that really how much? Yeah, yeah, that was how much. Bang, both of them drop down dead in a Sunday meeting. It's just worth bearing in mind that flippancy with the glory of God is not a good move. I had this, um, when I was <laughs> in my bathroom, I'm not technical, at all. And I, was, I just thought, oh, it's all right, I'll, I'll change the bathroom light fitting. Not the bulb, which is fine, but I sort of unscrewed the thing with the, you know, the pulley, I don't even know what it's called, but the, the pulley light switch things that you do when you, you know those things when you think you might have set off the alarm, but at the same time you just put in the bathroom light. And so I unscrewed that, screwdriver out, oh, I've got a screwdriver, real man, me, stand on a chair, and take it off, and then forget that, of course, this is live, so I reach up and try and pull the thing that's stuck, and I electrocute myself off the mains. Now, I make quite a fuss when I stub my toe. I'm a fairly theatrical person, and I really enjoy making a bit of a scene, but oh my goodness, when you electrocute yourself, you know about it. Electricity is this beautiful power that's there to give light and heat and everything else to our family. It's wonderful. Who wouldn't, who wouldn't like electricity in their life? But you get too close. You treat electricity without the respect that it deserves. You find yourself in a lot of pain shouting very loudly on the floor. And some of you have electrocuted. Anybody here clapometer? Anybody here electrocuted themselves off the mains before? Oh, a surprising number of fellow idiots in this room. I'm so pleased. Shout out to all the numpties who don't know how to use electricity, because I didn't either. And at that point, you, but you do realize it gives you a new respect for electricity as a thing. And you realize this is a force for good. This is power on my side. But if I monkey around with it and don't treat it with respect, I'm in big trouble and a lot of cause a lot of pain um one more story i just i thought might be relevant here um a friend of mine was uh, had one of these things where he had uh, some of these like prayer meetings in his mother's shed a few years back 
Um, because loads of their friends were sort of experiencing God and they thought, let's get together and we'll pray. But our parents think the whole thing's a bit weird, so we'll gather secretly in the shed. And they did. And there was, I don't know, 10 or 15 of them praying away. And God begins to mightily move in such a way that people think, he's really here. This isn't one of those things where we go, yeah, let's just, let's just pray and we believe God's here, but we don't really know that he is, but we kind of hope he is, and then everybody goes home. This is one of those things where they're like, God is here. But some of the people there weren't Christians. And so there was this guy, was this guy who comes charging out, and he's shouting to the people around, going, God's in the shed! Seriously, God, God is in the shed! And my friend was telling the story, saying, it's like something went wrong with his voice. He's going, but, but God is in your mum's shed! God, really, the God is in your mum's shed! And as I heard that, I thought, something happens when you touch the mains, when you're out in the storm in the North Sea, or when you find yourself in the dwelling place of God in a shed, or, God forbid, when you open the lid of the ark, you get struck by awe at the dangerous position you're in. Who can stand, they said, who can stand before the Lord? This holy God. We're in trouble. Not, we didn't even look at it. We're just in trouble for being near people who have. So what do the men of Bet Shemesh do? Well, at the end of 1 Samuel 6, they, this is too hot for us to handle, so they say, we'll send it on to a near, another nearby city called Kiriat-Jerim in 1 Samuel chapter 6 and beginning of chapter 7. But I like the way they do it. Uh, it they, say, um, they sort of summon the guys from Kiriat-Jerim and they say, the ark of the Lord has been returned by the Philistines. Come and bring it up to you. So this is a box that has now destroyed a god. It's led to a loss of a battle, destroyed a god, st- covered people with boils, covered people with boils again. Then they've sent it over to Israel. It's just killed 70 people. So these guys are like, we don't want any more of this. Hey, you're not over there. Come over here and get this box the Philistines have given you. It's a little bit dodgy. And the men of Kiriat-Jerim come and get it. And they take it and they put it in a particular guy's house called Abinadab and they leave it there. It stays there for probably nearly 100 years actually, if you count them all up. And after that point, the ark disappears from the story for a long time. And you kind of have some questions about why and where God is and what he's doing. But there's a hundred years or so where the people of God, it seems, try and avoid the danger of the presence of God in their midst by just ignoring it. So this is too dangerous. What they don't notice is that the only reason the ark is dangerous is because they have treated it flippantly, without respect, without honor. They've treated it as if it's just a random piece of tat rather than as if it is the dwelling place of the God who made the stars. They don't know that, so they mess around with it. But as a result, they're so terrified, they say, well, you, you have it, you have it. We'll keep it in his house. Shut the door. And they make sure it will never come out. It's all right. And they leave it up there. A lot of time passes until the arrival of King David. And we have King David in 2 Samuel, chapter 5 and 6, David becomes king a long time, probably a hundred years odd later. And David, who is beginning to make his headquarters at Jerusalem, which is here, David has decided, this is silly. The living God lives in a box in my homeland and he's stuck in some random guy's house. This is not right. So I want us to go and get the Ark of the Covenant and bring it up to Jerusalem. And that's what David and his men begin to do. But they make a dreadful error. Because although God has said, I want this box to be carried by men on poles, they say, 
you know what? We don't really need to do that. We can put it on the back of a cart. It's just easier. After all, it's hot carrying a wooden and gold box in the Middle East. So let's not do that. Let's put it on the back of a cart and the cows can pull it or the oxen can pull it instead. They, they haven't learned their lesson yet. And you can tell if you understand what it means for this to be God and us to be human, you can tell something bad's about to happen. And sure enough, that is exactly what takes place. They put the, the ark on the back of a cart led by the oxen and the oxen start walking to Jerusalem. And then one of the oxen trips on a stone and it's like time slows down. The ark of God, the dwelling place of God, begins to fall off the back of the cart towards the ground. And Uzzah, who's one of the men, his name is Uzzah, is standing nearby and he goes, the ark of the Lord is falling. And he reaches out to catch it from falling. And instantly he dies before the presence of the Lord. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. You would be, wouldn't you? David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of God come to me? How can the ark of God come to me? David, you see, is not, he's also not really learned the lesson because he doesn't realize at this point that the ark doesn't want to kill you. God doesn't want to kill people. God wants to bless people. But when people are flippant with it, and disobey his instructions and say, that one doesn't matter, who cares? It doesn't. Ox, people, poles, cows, who cares? What's the difference? That's when you run into trouble with the presence of the living, divine one. And so David thinks, this is, this is scary. How can the ark of God come to me? And so what they do is they send it off to this other guy called Obed-Edom's house, and they say, Obed-Edom, you can look after it. Obed-Edom is a is a Gentile. David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his household. Obed-Edom, is, when it says Gittite, it, that means he comes from Gath, which is this city over here that just got covered in boils. And he now lives amongst Israelites for whatever reason. He's a Gentile like most of us and not a Jew. And David thinks this is just not safe. But everybody seems to die when they come into contact with this box. So we're going to put it over here. You have it. And back he goes to Jerusalem. But then that's the astonishing thing that takes place, as we just saw. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. So this guy, who's not even a Jew, has got the living God dwelling in his front room. He literally comes... I don't know how it works in the ancient world, but he brushes his teeth, walks downstairs, puts the kettle on. I know they don't do these things, but you know, puts the, opens the curtains, and then he says, oh, hi, hi, God, living God, maker of heaven and earth. Good to have you in the front room. And then potters off and does something else. For three months. And word gets back to David in his capital of Jerusalem. The Lord has blessed Obed-Edom and his whole house. And David begins to think, do you know what? I wonder... I wonder if perhaps this box was not given to destroy me. I wonder if maybe this box wasn't meant to be used as a lucky charm to take into battle. And maybe it wasn't meant to be another God alongside many in someone else's temple. And maybe it wasn't even supposed to be the kind of thing where we have God among us, but we just sort of have a look and mess around and put it on something else. Maybe if we treat the living God with the honor and respect that he deserves... 
His presence is here to bless us because this guy, Obed-Edom, is not doing any of those things and he seems to be fine. Maybe God actually is committed to bless by dwelling among us and if I just go and get that ark and bring it up with me, he will come and bring blessing to me. He's finally got it. And so they begin to walk with the ark back and you see this in 2 Samuel chapter 6 and they begin to walk the ark back up the hill. Jerusalem's atop of loads of hills. They walk back up and up and up. And as they approach Jerusalem, David begins to get the idea, the box isn't killing me. The box isn't killing me. Oh, it's amazing. The living God is not here to kill me. He will, if I monkey around with him or try and make him one of several gods or use him as a talisman. But if I have him and I simply honor him, if I say, our father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. If I treat him like that, then he blesses me in everything in my household. And, he's, and as David's on this journey, he's thinking, I'm not dead. This is amazing. They begin sacrificing animals and people began to come out of the street and look at this procession. You think the Olympic flame is special? Imagine what it's like for the people to be in a procession in which God, the maker of all things, is walking in a group of people on poles towards a city. And you are standing there saying, God is coming. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. He's going to bless, he's going to bless, he's going to bless. And as the whole nation is beginning to hear the news, David cannot help himself from celebrating. The box begins to arrive, and he's gone from over here. He was like, who can stand in your presence? So I fall face down. And he's pretty scared. By the time it reaches Jerusalem, he's beginning to go, I will dance, I will sing to be mad for my king. Nothing, Lord, is in the ring. That's where, and he actually says the lines to his wife, who is very embarrassed about his dancing. I know what that's like. He says, I will celebrate before the Lord and I will become even more undignified than this. I, you haven't seen anything yet because if you think that I'm going to get the presence of God and walk with him into my city and put this box here as a demonstration that the living God is here among my people to bless me and my household and my nation. If you think that's going to happen and I am not going to dance about it, you don't know me at all. I will become far worse than this. That's why we move like this. I don't know how you do it. I mean, when I do it, it's something a little like that because I'm old, but some of you are very, various variations on it. But they, bring, but they bring the ark of the Lord in and they say, I'm good. that's why we move like this. I will become even more. Un- the living God is here and he's not going to kill me. Far from it. He is going to bless me. And his wife, Michelle, is like, you're so embarrassing. You made such a f- spectacle of yourself this afternoon. And he says, it's going to get so much worse than this. Look, God, God, God is here and he loves me and he's going to bless me. You don't have a moment's chance of stopping me from dancing with all my might before the God who made the stars and wants to live amongst people. You have no hope of stopping me from expressing my joy. How dare you even try? And so he does. And he, the book ends of 2 Samuel with him buying the piece of land that will end up being the place where the temple is built. And it's eventually his son Solomon who places the ark in that temple. There's a big curtain in front of it. Whoosh, make sure people are safe. And then the ark settles there for the next 500 years. That's kind of the story of the ark in 1 and 2 Samuel. And I think that as we look at it, we can see quite a lot of resemblances, I suspect, between ourselves 
and some of the people in that story. Some of us, as I said, are those who charge into battle saying, oh, it's okay, I'm sure it'll be fine, and if it's not working, I'll just ask God. I'm sure he'll make it okay. Some of us, as I said, are those who want to put the presence of the living one next to the presence of the dead God that we happen to quite like, and just don't have them both. You know, Dagon plus God, Jesus plus you know, fame, sexual self-fulfillment, whatever it might be. I'll have them all, to be honest, line them all up in a row, but I don't mind. And the living God summons some of us tonight to say that's never going to work because your gods will either have to bow face down in front of the real one or I'm afraid you can't have this living God anywhere near you without being covered in boils. You need to fear, some of you, some of you need to fear for your life when some of the things that you say around God and do in front of God. Not many. I've done things where I think in the past where I've realized, wow, I'm lucky to be alive. God is holy and I have treated him as if he's not. I've treated him as if his presence is just a bit of tat. And I think the men of Bet Shemesh over here, they'd say the same thing. But what they'd add is, I think there's some of us here who, you know, it's not that we, it's not that we explicitly say we want God plus something else. It's just that there's a whole bunch of things God says that we don't really care about. We don't really take them seriously. We say, who cares? Look in the box. Don't look in the box. Up to you. Put it on a poles. What's the difference? Let's put it on a cow. I think some of you this evening, the thing God is revealing to you, even as I'm speaking, is there are whole swathes of things that the living God has spoken about how he is to be honored. I just don't care about. I just ignore them. I don't think God would say to some of us, you need to fear. You need to fear. Who can stand before the Lord, this holy God? And then there are some of you who aren't like the, then you're not lucky charm people, and you're not lots of God's people, and you're not flippant people. Actually, your main challenge is that you've just got used to the idea that God lives here. And what you need perhaps sometimes is just to look around in wonder at the fact that the presence of the living one is amongst you and is blessing everything in your household and go on that journey of saying, do you know what, I'm going to welcome the presence of God into my home. I'm going to bring him into my city. I'm going to make him the centerpiece of everything I have and I'm going to celebrate like there's no partying either this side or the next because I want to acknowledge the wonder of having the living one living here. He's here to bless me. I've seen him bless other people and now I know he's on my side. He's here to bless richly. Yes, God is a God who is frightening if we are flippant with him. But he is a God who, when he is on your side, has nothing but favor and blessing for everyone who fears him. And I don't know which of those people you are. I want to invite you in a moment to respond. I'm going to ask the band to come out now. And I'll invite you in a moment to respond. But I think there will be a whole bunch of us for whom one of these first three positions resonates with you. You know that that might be you. So some of us, there's four positions in total. We'll do the fourth one in a moment. But there's some of them, some of you, you're like, yeah, I just ask God when I need him. Other than that, I don't, I don't care about him. Some of you, God plus. God and this other thing. Thanks, that'll do me fine. So Simon was speaking last night and you thought, actually, I don't really, I, it's not like I make so-and-so an idol above God. It's just that I want them both. I think you need to get serious with God tonight. You need to repent before him tonight. 
Or thirdly, there might be people who are saying, ah, I just don't really care. God says all sorts of things. I don't really need to listen. He's here. That's what matters. It doesn't really matter if I obey him or anything. And then I think the fourth group who we'll talk about in, just a, in respond in a moment slightly differently is those who just need to know that the presence of God is among you to bless. And he wants abundance and favor. And you need to be able to celebrate again in an undignified way the reality that he is among you. Who can stand, friends, who can stand before the Lord, this holy God? Who can do it? Who can do it? Don't clap. Who can do it? How can the ark of God come to me, come to little old me? How is it possible that the living God by his spirit is in this room now and I'm still here? How does that even work? I'm going to invite you all quietly, please, to get to your feet straight away. It's without talking. And then I'm going to ask almost immediately when you have... I'm going to ask all the people in this tent who associate with any of those three positions. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to kneel. In just a moment, okay? We're going to do it together. So I think three positions. I use God as a lucky charm. I, I don't really care what he says. I don't pray that much. But I mean, I ask for his help in trouble. That's it. In a moment, I'd like you to kneel. Or it's God plus someone else. In a moment, I'd like you to kneel and acknowledge your sin and repent and ask for his beautiful forgiveness over you. Acknowledge his holiness and marvel at him. And thirdly, these people, some of you are saying, I'm, I'm with these people. I just, God says things, I ignore him. I know I do. I know I like God, but I just disregard whole swathes of things he's told me. If you're in any of those three categories, I'm not going to ask for a big song and a dance, and there probably won't be any kind of come out the front or anything. I just want you right now where you are just to kneel before the Holy One, would you? The rest of you can say standing, but if you know one of those things is true, would you kneel? I'm going to lead us in a prayer, and we're going to sing. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who've sinned against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Holy, holy. If you are kneeling still, stand to your feet. The story does not end with broken people saying, how can the ark of God come to me? The story doesn't even end with people saying, I will become even more undignified than this. That story continues not with David 
or even with David's son, but with David's great, 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 great grandson who becomes the place where God dwells like he's never dwelt before. And when this dwelling place of God, Jesus of Nazareth, steps into the world, he is no longer a box that people die if they look at and get struck down if they touch. He is a man who when people look at and when they reach out and touch him, instead of his holiness killing them, his holiness heals them and saves them. And so women who have been bleeding inside for years touch him and instead of being struck down, that's what she thought was going to happen. She literally said, I'm terrified. No, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. And Jesus says, I know somebody touched me. And instead of that being the word of condemnation for her, it became the life and blessing and redemption she needed. And the same is true for you. You reach out and touch hold of his cloak. You touch the ark in Christ now and you are healed and freed and redeemed and made holy and his holiness is no longer a threat. It is the life and blessing you needed. And you have become like Obed-Edom, like David, become a healed blessed person who can sing for joy because they know for sure that the God who came for them is on their side and you need to stand and you need to lift your head and you need to acknowledge that for whatever sins you've just been confessing and however frightened you may rightly have been in front of the maker of the stars he does not stop by creating planets or by living in a box he comes for you He dies for you, he rises for you, and he frees you to enjoy him forever. Let's celebrate him, shall we? I am blessed.